Welcome to Park Ave Baptist Church Podcast. A weekly broadcast of our Sunday sermon. I'm Himra Chanel, pastor of community engagement and stewardship. And I'm Darcy Jarrett, pastor of worship, advocacy, and arts. Park Ave is a bold, inclusive, and creative community where everyone is welcome. We uplift voices and identities that are marginalized elsewhere. We affirm all ethnicities, racial identities, ages, socioeconomic groups, gender identities, and sexual orientations because we hold to a theology that refuses to other anyone. At Park Ave, our leadership model is non-hierarchical. And we practice an open pulpit where you will hear a multiplicity of theologically trained voices from different backgrounds and social locations. We don't just preach and talk about deconstructing systems and structures of power. We We practice practice it. Through this podcast, we hope you will be inspired, encouraged, and challenged. Listen Listen with with us now. Park Avenue Baptist Church, in response to COVID-19, has suspended in-person worship, but that can't stop us. What you'll hear on this podcast is a recording of our online worship, which happens each Sunday at 10 a.m. Join us through our Facebook, at Park Ave Baptist, or our Instagram, at Park Ave Baptist. We hope that you stay safe in these difficult times. Let's hear now a reading from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What do you have to do with me, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed and they kept on asking one another, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Pastor Darcy. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I got to confess a little um, first. Um, I don't always think or act most days like um, God can actually liberate us from some of the things that we see, some of the things we experience, some of the things in my own heart. And um, I was reminded just then uh, that every chain can in fact be broken. That liberation is real and possible. And so it's in that hope and that expectation, um, which the spirit has already set, uh, set the table, <laughs> already been at work, um, that uh, Jordan already shares, that, uh, that I want to share with you all this morning. So, gosh, uh, it's so good to be back with so many of you. Um, thanks for having me. Um, this is uh, when, when Darcy and Pastor Darcy and Pastor Henry asked me about this. I was like, yeah, sure. And we sort of put it on the calendar and uh, sort of took shape. Uh, we love, I love you too, Daniel. It's so good to see y'all all again. Um, 
so some of you I know really well and have known for years and, and others I don't know very well, but my name's Trey Lyon and I'm affirmed by he, him pronouns. Um, and I'm so grateful to be back here today. Um, I have to say uh, at, at sort of the beginning, um, uh, because of the, this opportunity and to share with you, um, it's, it's, it's tricky in a sense because some of you I know really well and some I don't, but I'm a former pastor at Park Ave. And uh, during that time, that found us there in the city of Atlanta. But today, I'm sharing worship with you from a bit south of the city on land that belongs to the Muskogee Creek people. I want to honor that land and that tradition because today, as we explore themes of destruction and abolition, the sin of colonialism and white supremacy continue to mar the places and land my family now occupy. Occupy is probably the best word here. I don't own this land and neither truly did the person who lived here before us and built this house. It wasn't by the, owned by the folks who lived here before that, nor was it owned by the man who once claimed this and many neighboring acres where he enslaved 24 persons of African descent. If I'm honest with you, I didn't know any of that history. They don't put genocide, enslavement, and brutality on the Zillow listings. I had to learn it, to seek it. I had to look it up. And even now, I'm still piecing together the actual story of this land that I now occupy. And as is often the case with peoples and populations who have been oppressed, colonized, and brutalized. The story either isn't told at all, or only a caricature where the oppressed or indigenous people are painted as an adversary to be conquered or as a subject of charity. Of course, eventually I would learn this isn't the real truth, but finding that truth is difficult work, but it's critical to get to true abolition because we can't get there without telling the whole truth, the actual story behind the lies of colonialism and racism those great lies manufactured by white supremacy. And those lies don't go down easy. Often they go with lots of noise, pain, and even violence. And this is the moment we find ourselves in. But I think there's a scene at the beginning of Mark, our reading for today that Miles read earlier, that speaks to this present reality we find ourselves in now. For context, in Mark's gospel, things move quickly. We're still in chapter one, and John the baptizer has already proclaimed repentance and baptized Jesus. Jesus has already been tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He's just stated his mission, as Hannah preached on last week, a mission of abolition. And Jesus has even already called the first disciples to follow. And that's just in the first 20 verses. So in verse 21, Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum and is teaching as one with authority. When all of a sudden, someone there, cries out in a loud voice, makes people nervous, as Deacon Daniel said. A man described as having an unclean spirit. He shouts out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebukes him, tells him to be silent, and calls the unclean spirit out of the man. The text says the unclean spirit caused the man to convulse and to shout out in a loud voice before coming out of the man, healing him the first of many miracles of Jesus and the gospel of Mark. Now in other translations and other gospels, there's recordings of Jesus casting out demons. 
And it's possible whatever translation you read along today might even call the unclean spirit here a demon as well. But the interesting thing is that isn't in Mark's gospel, not in this passage anyway. And so I'm left wondering what that might mean. If I'm honest, talk of demons and possessions is hard for me and possibly for you. For some, it doesn't seem rational and it gets dismissed as sort of the pre-modern world's way of trying to make meaning out of all manner of physical and psychological ailments. But still for others, it's deeply triggering as people we once trusted and loved have weaponized that language against us. And still for others, there's a very real sense that supernatural realms very much exist and that we work with whatever language and whatever metaphors we have at the time to try to give voice to things we simply don't understand. And in this case, the scripture calls it an unclean spirit. That's right out of the Greek text, but it is loaded language. In our time right now, we are rightly reframing binaries as spectrums of understanding and moving away from either or constructs, recognizing the ways in which those get weaponized against other folks. But the, the impulse towards that either or, it's ancient. And in the time of Jesus, social binaries were strong, especially when talking about the social order. There were actions, processes, and even people that were decidedly clean and others which were decidedly unclean. So to say unclean here in this sense is to push the hardest possible binary away from good or holy, which really just meant set apart. It's what we might think of today when someone jokingly says something is of the devil. It's to push it as hard away from the good as we can. So Mark's gospel tells us the spirit is unclean, but what's interesting to me is whether or not this man knows he has this unclean spirit. Narrator tells the story that way, and I'm sure if we ask this man, he might have a different version of the story. And then he asks a critical question. Have you come to destroy us? Now, some folks interpret this us as evidence of all manner of demons inside the man. Like that story from Matthew where Jesus casts out the legion of spirits. But I honestly think something else is going on here. I think this man sees someone coming into his town, his synagogue, claiming authority greater than the scribes. He sees Jesus as an existential threat, not only to himself, but to his culture. And when his culture is threatened, he erupts and shouts down Jesus. Jesus then calls the unclean spirit out of the man, tells him to be quiet. But the unclean spirit doesn't go quietly. It forces all manner of convulsions and cries out one last time, one last gasp of supremacy in the face of what must be imminent destruction. In the original language, and I'm not making this up, the phrase here is megaphone. He cried out with a large voice, megaphone. And yet, despite all of that, the convulsing and the crying out, the man is not destroyed. The spirit leaves the man, and the crowd is astonished, wondering what kind of power it must be to call out unclean spirits, and they respond. Well, full disclosure, I'm a white, cisgender, heterosexual male. I grew up in a solidly middle-class, overwhelmingly white community in South Cobb County outside of Atlanta. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, an institution which was founded to preserve slaveholder religion and white supremacy, a fact I wouldn't learn till college. When I was in school, the life of Frederick Douglass 
was a two inch breakout box in my history books. That's all we got. I was taught Martin was virtuous and Malcolm was dangerous and that racism was no longer a social problem. I remember in high school, one US history book reduced the entire contributions of W.E.B. Du Bois down to one sentence saying he coined the term double consciousness and never proceeding to define what that meant. That bugged me, so I looked it up. And I read where Du Bois describes approaching a girl to dance at school and being refused by her. And he described it as a veil being drawn before in his eyes where he could see the world as it actually was while others merrily danced on unaware. And he didn't use that metaphor, the veil, to lay out the idea of double consciousness, that to be black in America is to perceive oneself through the eyes of another, the eyes of whiteness. Now, personally, I couldn't understand the grief Du Bois talked about because I was spinning madly on on that dance floor, unaware of this reality and pain Du Bois talked about. And in that moment, for me, the closest analogy I can think of is that scene in The Matrix where Neo awakens to see that what he thought was a very clean, orderly world is in fact chaos and disruption with you know, baby harvesting robots. But as my brain sort of was open at this moment, I kept reading Du Bois and he took that idea and then he transforms it. He says that Tunis is almost a superpower that black folks can see the world as it actually is while everyone else spins madly on blissfully unaware. In that moment, I was disabused of the notion that I, that whiteness, and more specifically that white, male, abled, heteronormative me was not in fact the center of the universe. Nor did the world that I thought I inhabited actually really exist. It was a construct, like a movie set with forced perspective that looks like New York, but is really a field in Fresno. In a world made for whiteness, I'm blissfully unaware that anything else exists. I don't even know there's an unclean spirit inside until someone starts to call it out. The whiteness that built America has always been obvious to anyone not white. But for me, it's been an unveiling, a revelation, an ongoing series of convulsions. And strangely enough, despite all the times I thought that unclean spirit had finally exited my body, I keep learning where it lurks in my very own cells. At the beginning of the pandemic, I caught an episode of On Being, uh, the podcast about humanity and spirituality hosted by Krista Tippett, who's a journalist. Her guest that day was the somatic therapist slash activist slash abolitionist, Resma Menachem. And what struck me is that he called out Krista Tippett on the way her body viscerally reacted to the term whiteness. Now, because Menachem's work is centered in the way bodies respond to trauma, he takes those moments as teaching moments and does some exercises around it. It was so compelling that I picked up his book, My Grandmother's Hands, where he reflects and guides you through the way bodies respond to engaging race-based generational trauma. He speaks of the way black bodies and white bodies and police bodies experience trauma in their bodies and then respond to one another out of that trauma. And in the intro to a chapter titled European Trauma and the Invention of Whiteness, he starts off as you would with quotes to frame the chapter from Toni Morrison and James Baldwin. And then he drops one from Marcellus Wallace, Samuel L. Jackson's character in Pulp Fiction. I'm a get medieval on your... Well, you probably know the rest. I laughed when I read it because I think I knew where he was going. 
See, in the chapter that follows, though, I had no idea what I was in for. Resmaa Menachem in that chapter reads whiteness in me explicitly and implicitly as being rooted in practices that emerged from Europe into public torture as a means of social control. He traces how Europeans use public beatings, torture, and execution as a way to deter publicly any behavior beyond a given norm, and how that was then brought over in the colonization of the land we now occupy in America. Just imagine the Salem trials or those colonial reconstructions you see at the town hall with the stocks out front. This generational trauma of public physical punishment is in my cells as a white descendant of European ancestors, according to Menachem. And he gets that from groundbreaking research that says we carry trauma in our bodies generationally on the cellular level. In other words, this isn't theory, it's science and it's emerging. We aren't quite sure yet how far this goes in our bodies. When I read that in his book, I felt it deep in my body, like a deep truth you've always known was there, but you didn't have a name for. I thought of how I felt when I was researching my family history, and I found out that my ancestors, who held the name Lion, came to what would become America in the 1640s in fear. According to oral history, they were followers of Oliver Cromwell when he stormed into Parliament in England, and then they were on hand to stand guard when he brought out Charles I to be beheaded. Allegedly, the brothers were worried. They didn't realize what they'd signed up for, this public execution of political leaders. So they quickly made an escape plan. So I literally feel this horrible repulsion and fascination in my white body. And then things got worse because I started to think critically about my faith. I realized I grew up hearing that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Every Easter, I was reminded of the brutality that Christ suffered for my sins. I sang songs about the power of the blood. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath its flood lose all their guilty stains. That's an actual song that we sang all the time. And it occurred to me that this way of thinking about Jesus, that he bore the wrath of God, was tortured, and died to satisfy a blood debt. That isn't scripture. It's the twisted logic of a theology forged as whiteness was being forged, providing salvation and a justification for mortifying the flesh. And for those of you doing seminary or theology work, just let that thought sit in for a bit and let it unravel the dominant narrative of Western Christology for the last 500 years. And maybe you've already done the work of moving away from penal substitutionary atonement. But what does it mean that that theological construct runs parallel to the invention and construction of whiteness? Intertwined. But it didn't just make sense there. It also suddenly made sense why when I started reading James Cone, he didn't talk about Jesus the way I grew up hearing about Jesus. No, he didn't talk about Jesus as a lamb led to the slaughter. He talked about Jesus as someone acquainted with sorrow, with brutality, someone who spoke and aligned with the marginalized and was killed by the state, lynched, put on public display because of it. Three weeks ago, a group of white nationalists stormed the temple of civil religion in this country, the United States Capitol. The fallout was incredible, mostly from white folks like me who said, how can this happen? Meanwhile, black, indigenous, Latinx, and persons of color collectively sighed and said, clearly you have not been paying attention. 
that day triggered a lot of thoughts and deep reflection and anger for me as it has for many. And uh, some of you know me, you know how my brain works, but I honestly thought of this random town in Germany. Weird, I get it. But in 1534 in Munster, Germany, a group of Anabaptists believed the end of the world was coming. So they sought to bring about the reign of God by forced occupation. They kicked folks out of the city. They executed anyone who would not repent and brutally and publicly tortured those who resisted. Eventually, they're overthrown by the state. Who was at that very point, 1534, very beginning of Protestant Reformation, aligned with the Catholic Church. So once the occupation was over, three of the instigators were tortured and suspended from three cages that were hung from the steeple of the cathedral. And one of the most disturbing aspects of this story is those cages still hang from Munster Cathedral to this very day. Because that brutality, that genetic trauma is still here in political capitals and hanging from church steeples. And honestly, I'm wondering how this unclean spirit can ever leave the body, my body, the bodies of other white folks, the so-called body of Christ that carries this distorted view of Jesus, where someone thought storming the Capitol and praying to consecrate it to Jesus is any time ever what God would have wanted. When Jesus told the spirit to be silent, it wasn't. It cried out in a loud voice. It forced all manner of convulsions. It did not go peacefully, but it did go. But it asked the basic question, have you come to destroy us? And I think underneath that question is that the core of the overt manifestations of white supremacy, overt in this moment. The word translated here as destroy can also mean to kill, ruin, to abolish, or render useless. That fear, the visceral medieval deep in the genes fear of whiteness is destruction, and you can hear it. You hear it when torch-carrying supremacists in Charlottesville chanted, you will not replace us. What they were really saying is, have you come to destroy us? That when they say, make America great again, what they really mean is, have you come to destroy us? That Blue Lives Matter is really another way of saying, have you come to destroy us? That when people complain, defund the police is imprecise, pick a better slogan. What they're really saying in neoliberal slang is, have you come to destroy us? The sickness and the sadness of this is almost too real because the privileged, the powerful, the oppressor can never genuinely understand abolition. And whether that supremacy is ravaging the capital or legislated in those same halls of power, it doesn't matter. Both are afraid of genuine abolition because ultimately it means the destruction, not of their humanity, but of their power their comfort, their safety, their security, which honestly was always only ever an illusion, but one they will fight to the death to maintain. Abolition means freedom for everyone, even the freedom from the ways in which the oppressor oppresses themselves. The man who yelled at Jesus that day or the man yelling on parlor aren't that different. And honestly, neither am I. They think that they will be destroyed by what Jesus is calling out of them, is calling out of me. And this is how this scripture hits me today, 
that there is something being called out of me, my whiteness, my control, my power, my feelings of rightness and security. And that junk doesn't go out easy. It puts up a fight. But underneath it all somewhere, Jesus stills all of that and says, I'm not here to destroy you, but to help you believe something better is possible. That there's other options beyond what you can see. That the way things are does not have to be the way things will be. That you need to be set free. And that as James Baldwin alluded to, and all that talk of freedom, what you thought was a wall to keep others out has actually become a cage that's trapped you in. That's what I've realized and coming to realize have yet to fully realize. Has Jesus come to destroy us? No. Has Jesus come to destroy the systems that exist to perpetuate power and privilege? Oh, yes. And this is the moment we find ourselves in. I can identify with this man with an unclean spirit because that junk is still being called out of me on a daily basis, and it doesn't go quietly or easily. But where do you find yourself in this scene? Are you the abolitionist Jesus proclaiming with authority the bold, expansive, imaginative work of liberation that can only truly be realized through the abolition of all systems and structures of dominion and oppression? Or maybe you identify more with the disciples who just signed up, but who don't want to just talk about the work. They want to be about the work. And they're anxious to find ways to bring this bold vision to reality. Or maybe you've come to hear what Jesus has to say, drawn by his vision, when all of a sudden someone shouts out, bringing all their privilege and all their violence, taking up space, losing their junk, and you're left thinking, how are we even in the same place? Clearly, you have not experienced this world as I have. Wherever we find ourselves in the text, we likely also find ourselves in this moment, sitting in anticipation or anger or optimism, or pain, or resistance, or conviction, or fear. We sit here in the mess of it, on the verge of the miracle. This is that moment that the poor would no longer be poor, the mighty cast down, the unclean cleansed, not destroyed. It doesn't feel miraculous right now, but that's where Jesus meets us, in this mess, where we are, with an opportunity to become fully who we were made to be. What unclean spirits have you been empowered to call out as Jesus did as one with authority? What unclean spirit is being called out of me or of you in this moment? What plan can you hatch to make abolition a reality in our time? How can you bear witness to the miracle happening in the mess? I don't know where Jesus meets you today, but I am sure that we are being drawn along the same path. The road to liberation, to goodness, to abundance, to freedom, to walk this narrow path, the road of abolition, through treacherous times, amidst the ruins of power, privilege, and empire, believing, despite all evidence to the contrary, that a miracle might yet just be around the corner. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to worship with us in person, our services are on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m.-ish. We are at 486 Park Ave in Southeast Atlanta, across the street from Grant Park, at the corner of Park Ave and Sydney Street. To find out more about us or get in touch, visit our website at parkavebaptist.com. Now go into a world that is too often unjust. Knowing that the God that created you loves you and empowers you 
to love boldly, live inclusively, and serve creatively. Creatively.